This week, an exciting new molecule for the fight against brain disease. It protected them against synapse loss, it restored their memory, and with the prion disease mice, it, it led to quite an increase in survival. And where to go if your home is swallowed by the sea? We have this spiritual link to our land, and uh, we are proud people. We don't want to leave our islands and, and become refugees. Plus, we'll chlorophyll you in on a brand new nature journal all about plants. This is the Nature Podcast for January the 15th, 2015. I'm Jeff Marsh. And I'm Noah Baker. I wish I could hibernate, just sleep my way through this long, cold winter. Loads of other mammals do it. When mammals sink into these seasonal slumbers, take squirrels, for example, their synapses, the connections between their brain cells, completely dismantle. When they wake up again, they reassemble so perfectly that they can even remember where they left their nuts. On hearing this fun fact, a few years ago at a conference, Giovanna Malucci, a UK-based neuroscientist, realised that hibernating mammals would make a great model for studying neurodegenerative disease, where a reduction in the number of synapses is a classic early feature. She and her team at the Medical Research Council in Leicester, who are now based at the University of Cambridge, were working with several mouse models of brain disease. They wanted to see what happens when they made the mice hibernate, not something that they do in nature. Unlike the squirrels, these sick mice lack the ability to regenerate their synapses, and it seems to be because they also lack the function of a specific protein. Excitingly, boosting that same molecule protected these model brains from disease. What's happening in the brain of a hibernating mammal? So hibernation is a state in which the animal prepares to go without energy and therefore there are multiple metabolic and also structural adaptations that allow it to survive without essentially burning any fuel or doing any metabolic work and that affects all organs but notably the brain. One of the obvious ways to stop energy transmission is to stop synaptic transmission. So that one of the notable things that happens in hibernators' brains is that they dismantle their synapses. So this transmission cannot occur anymore. That sounds really quite dangerous to just break down all the synapses in your brain. It's a very carefully controlled process. And what actually happens is that they essentially remove the receptor element of the synapse, so the postsynaptic element. The receptor side of things is merely dismantled. It's not degraded or destroyed, and it reassembles very quickly. And this dismantling and then reassembling is a process known as structural plasticity. Yes. This is happening all the time all in the normal time. brains. All the time in normal brains, learning and memory particularly. We're continuously re remodeling our synapses to deal with changing information and changing environment. And some of the changes are more transient than others, but this whole concept of a, a very dynamic remodeling processes occurring throughout life. And it's possible to recreate this hibernating brain effect in the lab by just artificially cooling mice. Yes, we discovered that with this paper. If you induce hypothermia safely in a mouse and bring its body temperature down to that of a small hibernating mammal, exactly the same changes occur in its brain. The synapses break yeah. down. And then they, they dismantle and then they reassemble and you reward them. And they're completely fine when they come around. They behave normally, act normally. Just normal mice. Yeah, completely normal. So how does this process help us understand what's going on with neurodegenerative diseases? What this process allows us to do is to examine the regenerative capacity, the reassembly capacity of brains with neurodegenerative disease. So 
when I said to you that the structural plasticity is a continuous process in the adult brain, what you find in neurodegenerative disease is that actually synapse numbers decline very early. And that's what correlates with memory loss and the early spectrum of symptoms that you see with something like Alzheimer's disease. And so our hypothesis was that the loss of synapses was failure of structural plasticity. And in fact, what we did was we cooled wild-type mice and showed that they had intact structural plasticity. But if you cool Alzheimer mice or prion mice, mice with, that develop neurodegeneration, they have failed structural plasticity. So when they disassemble their synapses, they can't put them back together again. So it's the lack of the compensatory... Yes. it's a failure of endogenous regenerative capacity. And so what do we know then about the mechanism behind this loss of structural plasticity? So what we found in the paper is that structural plasticity is driven by a set of cold shock proteins, a pretty new family of proteins that is known to be upregulated in hibernating animals and in hypothermic cells. So these proteins, cold shock proteins, particularly RBM3, which is RNA binding protein motif 3, are normally induced by cooling, but that induction fails in neurodegenerative diseases. And by lacking RBM3, you don't regenerate your synapses efficiently, and so you start to lose synapses, and that's the road to neurodegeneration. So you wanted to know if this RBM3 was responsible for synaptic recovery. How did you go about answering that? So cooling induces RBM3. So we cooled the animals and boosted their endogenous levels within the brain of RBM3, and this completely protected them. It protected them against synapse loss, it restored their memory, and with the prion disease mice, it, it led to quite an increase in survival. Obviously, cooling is a generic stimulus, and it does more than just raise RBM3, so then we just put in RBM3, and we just ejected these into these mice with neurodegenerative disease, and then saw what happened. And again, they were completely protected against that loss of synapses and the memory loss, and they survived for longer. And actually, if you reduce further the levels of RBM3 by knocking it down, you accelerate disease and make it worse. So it does seem to have a very pivotal role in driving this synaptic regeneration process in these disorders. The question everyone's going to be thinking is, is this going to lead to some new therapeutics for these diseases? So we already use hypothermia therapeutically in brain damage, in premature infants and in stroke but what the pathway gives us and what RBM3 gives us is a way of intervening without cooling. So if you can target the pathway in the same way as you would for any other metabolic process, you can then achieve the effects of cooling theoretically without actually having to make people cold. Now, obviously, we're working with mouse models here, but presumably humans also express RBM3 or some sort of analogue. Yeah, we haven't looked in humans. Um, all mammals do, and humans' neuronal cell lines do. We need to look now at what's going on with RBM3 in human brains, yeah, or that family of proteins. And um, do you see us boosting levels of RBM3 as a form of neuroprotection? That would be the ideal outcome. <laughs> yes, I mean, that would be a great way of boosting synaptic strength. And if you prevent synapses from degenerating, you prevent neurons from degenerating. So it's a very strong, protective strategy. That was Giovanna Malucci. Coming up in the research highlights, the monkey in the mirror. Plus, the editor of the newest Nature Journal tells us why we should be excited about plants. But before that, one of the most dramatic effects of climate change is the loss of land, and with it, people's homes. 
From Alaskan villages to whole island nations in the Pacific, climate change is eroding land or causing the sea to swallow it up. But what if you live on that land? Over to Kerry. There's one impact of climate change that's more drastic than most, having your home disappear. Climate change is forcing some communities to move, or at least prepare to do so, in the future. But practical help is slow. The United Nations climate arm only officially recognised the need for planned resettlement a few years ago, and scientific knowledge of the drivers and consequences is sparse. There's more on this in a comment article, and I gave the author Jessica Marta Kenyon a call. The article mentions the island community of Kivalina in Alaska, where a few hundred people live. Real-life examples aside for a moment, Jessica says there isn't really even a clear description of what resettlement is. You know, we're actually pretty far from a concrete definition of what climate resettlement might mean, how much involvement climate change would actually have to have in driving resettlement. But we do know, yes, that climate change is likely and may already be rendering some communities uninhabitable. It's just no longer safe for people to remain in place. Right. And sometimes pretty sizable communities. Yeah. So the, the one that we talk about in the article here is um, maybe relatively small, 400 people. But there are fears that, particularly because of sea level rise in the coming century, that there may be actually entire nations that uh, are no longer inhabitable. Um, so we're looking at the scale of thousands and thousands of people, maybe millions. One of those island nations watching with dread as sea levels rise is Kiribati in the Pacific. It's a series of coral atoll islands with a population of about 100,000. The country is three metres above sea level at its highest. Here's the Kiribati Government Secretary of Foreign Affairs and Immigration, Tessie Eria Lamborn, speaking at a World Bank panel last year. We have this spiritual link to our land and uh, we are proud people. We don't want to to leave our islands and, and become refugees. But of course, we are realistic enough to, to, to know that it's, it, it will be up to the international community to be able to help countries like mine to, to deal with this and to prevent such catastrophic uh, situations from happening. Kiribati has a dual problem of sea level rise swallowing the islands and seawater contaminating drinking water sources, making it salty and unsafe. Other places, for example, that village of Kivalina in Alaska, need to move because as sea ice thaws, their island location is suffering flooding and erosion. In still other places, climate change is leading to drought. I asked Jessica Marta Kenyon what planning was being done internationally or in the communities themselves. Yeah, so you have a really sort of um, a broad range of responses from both communities and governments. For example, the governments of some small island states in the Pacific and Indian Oceans like Kiribati uh, and the Maldives, actually have uh, you know, government leaders going officially to petition the UNFCCC and other international organisations dealing with climate change, mitigation and adaptation. Kiribati is even considering moving to Australia. And then you've got, in some cases, actual communities who are petitioning their own governments uh, for assistance with relocation. So Kivalina, the, the Alaskan case that we discuss here, is one of those examples. And do you think enough is being done? No, no. And I think that that's, you know, hopefully what we're getting across with this article that compared especially to the scale of the phenomenon, the potential scale of the phenomenon, we really don't know enough uh, on the research side to be able to develop the kinds of policies that we need to help people who uh, are threatened by climate hazards. Right. I mean, what, what do you feel like it would be useful or, or vital perhaps to know before we can put policies in place? You know, we need to know a lot more about the drivers, the extent to which climate change really is a driver versus when it's being used as a sort of political motivator. 
whether or not resettlement projects motivated by climate change really involve actual climate risks and not simply the leveraging of climate change uh, as a sort of political tool. So we need to understand a lot more about communities themselves, whether or not they are interested in relocating together or if they would prefer to be supported, for example, through individual or household migration schemes. There are a lot of different uh, kinds of adaptations that can be undertaken in the face of of climate-related hazards. And moving is just the start. Kiribati's Tessie Area Lamborn points out some of the things to think about once her community moves. We don't want to be a burden to any community that may be able to, to take on our people. So we want to migrate as contributing members of those communities. So this involves the, the training of our people to international standards so they can compete for jobs at uh, international labour markets. You heard there from Jessica Marta Kenyon and Tessie Area Lamborn, Secretary of Foreign Affairs and Immigration for Kiribati. Thank you to the World Bank for the clips of Tessie speaking. More from them at worldbank.org and you can read Jessica's comment piece at nature.com slash news. And while I'm here, I suppose I should read the research highlights. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who is that? Recognising yourself in a mirror is considered a sign of self-awareness, but most animals react like they're seeing another individual. A new study reports that macaques can be trained to recognise themselves. A team in Shanghai plonked them in front of a mirror and shone a laser pointer on their faces. The laser felt a bit hot. If the monkeys reached up to touch the spot, they got a reward. And after this training, even without the heat sensation, the mirrored monkeys kept on touching the laser spot. They also use the mirror to look at usually unseen body parts, mostly their genitals. That paper is in Current Biology. You've probably heard the phrase peak oil. The peak of any resource is the point of maximum production. This week there's a new analysis of lots of peaks, including fossil fuels, food crops, meat and wood. Around 2006, many resources peaked at the same time. These simultaneous peaks could be a problem because one resource can't then sub in for another's deficit, causing problems for food security. Some resources haven't peaked yet, including fossil fuels, renewable energy and farmed fish. Ecology and Society has the study. Thanks, Kerry. Next up, at the end of last week, Nature launched a brand spanking new journal, Nature Plants. Joining me in the studio to tell me all about it is green-fingered editor-in-chief Chris Surridge. Chris, what is Nature Plants and what's it aiming to do? Nature Plants is a, is a standard nature-style uh, research journal that is going to cover the, the whole, the entirety of scientific research that involves plants. Uh, and that gives us a, a very, very broad remit from the genetics through the molecular biology, cell biology. But we're also going to look at you know, large system uh, uh, research into plants, uh, you know, ecology, and we hopefully will get our fingers on some eco- economics as well and, and that kind of stuff. Okay, so give us a roundup. What what can we see in this first issue that's just just been released? Uh, we have a, a very hard structural biology paper, which is all about how the molecules that um, sense uh, UV light in plants, plants need to know about blue and, um, and UV light for a whole number of reasons, part of which is to do with shading. They need to be able to sense blue light so that they can avoid shade, avoid growing leaves where they wouldn't be very useful for photosynthesis. On a sort of a, a, a larger scale, uh, sort of almost at the ecological, we have a paper on something called Glogger's Rule. Glogger's Rule is something we've seen in animals a lot, which says 
that animals become darker in pigment the closer they get to the, the equator. But surprisingly, despite the fact that this had been postulated back in 1833, I think it was, uh, it's never been looked at in plants before. Uh, and we have the, f the first time that, we've, that someone has looked at it very carefully in plants uh, and sees very good evidence for um, this darkening of pigmentation as you get closer to the equator in a, in a sort of periwinkle. It's a, a, a small yellow flower. We have a paper which mixes plant biology with, uh, with archaeology in that it's looking at uh, maize uh, samples that have been taken from archaeological sites through Mexico and the United States of America. And uh, by doing uh, careful genetics on these archaeological sam samples, they are able to see, uh, track the way that maize as a crop was imported from Mexico and Mesoamerica. Before this study, there were two competing views as to how um, uh, maize had been uh, introduced into southern uh, United States of America, either going along the shoreline or going through the highlands. This paper, by doing the, the genetics carefully, uh, shows that in fact both of these routes are, in, uh, are true and they've sort of combined later on. So it, it's, it's lovely dating. It's really nice, really nice story. As you say, a very wide range of things that you're covering here. And, you know, botany as a discipline has been around for, I imagine, well over a century. Why is it only in 2015 that nature is starting a plants journal? That's a very good question. Plant biology has always been extremely significant. Many of uh, biology as a whole's uh, discoveries were found in plants. The whole of genetics was uh, was founded by uh, work that looked at, um, uh, at pea plants with Mendel. Uh, transposons, for example, were found in maize. And yet, as you say, we haven't had a, had a dedicated plant journal until this point. I think there's a couple of things that have helped this. One is that over the last 10, 15 years, our ability to study the genetics of plants has come along in leaps and bounds. Uh, I think also there are external factors that are making plant biology even more important than, uh, than it was, say, 10 years ago. Uh, one of those is our growing population, which means that we have a greater pressure on our food resources, food security. These are becoming more and more important. Uh, one of the ways that we are going to tackle those is through plant science. Climate change uh, feeds into that as well. Climate change is, is, going, is meaning that we're going to have to change the way that we produce our food. And we shouldn't forget that plants pretty much produce everything that we need to survive. They produce our food, they capture um, energy that we then use to drive the modern world. So they're, they're just crucially important. So lots of big discoveries have happened in plants in the past, yes. and you've got new exciting techniques that are around now. Yes. What are the big things we should be looking out for then? What are, what are the things that you're really you know, keeping your eyes, eyes on in the next, the next couple of years? In some ways, the most in interesting thing to me will be to see how the interdisciplinary nature of plant biology continues. I wouldn't say starts, but continues. In that there are people out there doing uh, work in a classical botany sort of way, identifying plants, uh, giving them names. But that ties together with, with pharmacologists who are then using that knowledge to identify medically useful compounds. Or uh, there's a whole feed in of that sort of uh, behavior into agriculture as well. Uh, so it's 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 the whole package. Uh, plants are en eminently fascinating, and I'm I'm really pleased we've got a journal to talk about them in. Finally, this week it's the news chat, and here to regale us with this week's best bits is Ewan Calloway. Hi, Ewan. Hello. You've gone all populist this week and written about <laughs> cats. Cats are interesting, man. You know, like, why you got to hate on cats? Right. The story I wrote is about uh, a genomics project to sequence the genomes of 99 cats. Uh, it was discussed at a 
an animal genomics meeting in San Diego this weekend. And the point of the story was is that dogs, domestic dogs, have gotten all this attention from the genomics community, sequenced hundreds of dog genomes, found genes for lots of diseases, but cats have been mostly ignored. Why have cats been playing catch-up? Why are dogs better than cats? This goes back to the days after the human genome was sequenced in the early 2000s. You remember that White House ceremony, Craig Venter, Francis Collins, yada, yada, yada. They were looking for other animals to sequence. Mice and lab rats, no-brainer because scientists studied them so intensely. But there were a lot of other animals that were you know, put up for contention. And Dogs and cats are two of them, and dogs won out. Um, the, the people pushing dog sequencing made a, made a stronger case. They argued that dogs are long-lived and get many of the same diseases such as humans do, such as cancers and arthritis, even narcolepsy. And they argued that dog breeds, which are very, very inbred, would make finding disease genes a lot easier compared to cats, which are fairly diverse genetically except for a few fancy breeds. So it's not just that cats are more difficult to sequence. Dogs were genuinely thought to be more interesting at that point. That's what some people successfully argued, that dogs were more interesting and it would be easier to find uh, genes linked to disease and traits and things in them. And they were probably right. But, you know, fast forward 10 years, genome sequencing technology has come down drastically and, you know, every animal is being sequenced. So this project that I wrote about is like, it's time for cats. And there's really not a lot of money for cat genomics. And so they've been kind of cobbling it together from wherever they can get it, from pet food companies, from nonprofits. Uh, you can pay 7500 bucks and have your cat sequenced. Like, you don't, do you have a cat, Jeff? I do, but I don't entirely trust it. <laughs> not, would you trust it with $7,500 is the question. <laughs> Probably not. Yeah, so this project is getting going. And the goal, its goal is to, just as we've done with dogs, identify genes linked to diseases that cats suffer from and which are similar to human diseases. There's a, a cause of end-stage kidney failure that is a major killer of cats and the leading cause of kidney failure in older humans. Yeah. Now, people love cats. The internet has proved that. But this project isn't just about cat welfare, or is it? Is this about cat disease or human disease? Or? It's about both, you know. The the people involved in the project are, are cat lovers, cat fanatics. Cat, you know, they're veterinarians, they're scientists. And, yes, they want to address cat health. A great example is the woman leading this project named Leslie Lyons. A few years ago, maybe a decade ago, she discovered a gene linked to this kidney disease that is a leading killer of cats, especially breeds such as Siamese. And it, the mutation that causes this disease is in the same gene that causes a similar disease in humans, which is a cause of end-stage renal failure in adults. And... With cats, the identification of this mutation has allowed them to screen cats who carry this mutation out of the breeding pool. So it's much rarer in cats now, this disease, um, as a result of these, this research. But they're also working on identifying drugs that could potentially treat the disease in cats and in humans. So it, it rubs both ways. Leslie Lyons, who would have thought someone with that name would end up working with cats? I know, and her lab website is called the Lion's Den, L-Y-O-N-S. Well, there you go, listeners. Check it out. OK, so that's Cats done. Next up, a story about an advance in microscopy. Yeah, this one's pretty crazy. Um, so this might sound like kind of the, the drug-induced uh, fantasy of a scientist who's read Alice in Wonderland a few too many times. But these researchers in MIT had this idea that, like, 
why not make cells bigger instead of, you know, using a microscope to make them look bigger? <laughs> why not just stand closer to it? <laughs> yeah. But it, this, it, it goes down to this whole idea that um, this German physicist in the 19th century figured out that when you look at something with a light microscope, there's a limit to how close you can discern two objects, two things. Uh, this is what's known as resolution. Uh, this guy determined that it's about anything closer than 200 nanometers or so appears a blur. And that's just because of the wavelength of light. Right. Um, so how do they inflate these tissues? Well, they used a material or a chemical called polyacrylate that's in baby diapers. It's what makes baby diapers so absorbent, if you will. And to explain it rather simply, they basically clear out the tissue so proteins are still there, but it's permeable so it can be infused with this monomer, this baby diaper monomer called acrylate. And then you basically add water and it inflates the tissues, you know, a certain amount of distance in every direction, basically making proteins that were closer than 200 nanometers farther apart. So everything is about four and a half times bigger in every dimension. And then you can image it with a normal light microscope, stain it with fluorescent dyes and things that make things glow and get what they call super resolution microscopy with a normal scope. And you mentioned brains there. Is that the sort of thing that we're hoping to look at with this? Is it called expansion microscopy? Yeah, that's the name that Edward Boyden and his colleagues at MIT call it, expansion microscopy. Yeah, they're interested in brains. Um, and the reason why this technique is potentially useful for brains is because neurons form these networks of neurons where they talk to each other. And those occur on a very large scale, you know, centimeters, millimeters and centimeters. So you want to be able to see lots of neurons connected together. But you're also interested in really really nitty-gritty molecular details that happen at a distance closer than 200 nanometers, like how two neurons are talking to one another. And so this technique holds the potential to look at like an entire uh, neural network or even an entire brain in one big image and then zoom in to what's going on at an individual synapse, uh, which is where two neurons communicate. I guess my last question on this is how useful is it to look at such a highly modified tissue? Yeah, that remains to be seen. Um, they've done some proof of principle work right now, and they've shown that they that proteins are still there, that, that they can measure the distance between two proteins on opposite ends of the neural synapse where neurons communicate, and they get a measurement that's similar to what other people have done with other techniques. And so I guess it remains to be seen you know, how much information is maintained. They've shown that the proteins aren't warped, aren't distorted too much, or not maybe 1% to 4% through this process. So I think it's really up to the community, uh, the neuroscience community, to take this technique and see if it's up to the challenge. OK, thanks, Ewan. And I'd like to encourage you all to read those articles at nature.com news. Or if you're tired and emotional, just look at the cat picture instead. And if you haven't listened to it yet, the first of our new series on sound science will teach you how to echolocate. And by association, what it's like to be a bat. More episodes are coming monthly. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Jeff Marsh. <laughs> <laughs>